0: We're going to get now into uh, Luke's gospel. You can open up Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 28, is where we'll be. Luke 21, verses 5, now reading all the way down through verse 28. I'll read it, pray, and we'll dive in. I love this spot because as the morning comes, uh, as the morning goes along, the sun kind of comes out, I get hot, I start, I start warming up. Hopefully you guys too. or do too. Um, okay, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfil all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled under foot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verse 25 Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. God, right now, we want to see you. With the eyes uh, of our hearts, Lord, we want to see you. We confess that, as the week goes on, oftentimes our our eyes wander; they drift. And we find ourselves looking to other things for hope, looking to other things for pleasure, looking to other things to fix us, looking to for other to other things to fill us. Our eyes wander, Lord. Our hearts wander. And right now, Jesus, we are asking um, Your help that the eyes of our heart be illumined, that we see uh, through this text like a window. And on the other side of that window, we catch view of the glory of our Savior and the coming redemption. We want You to be our vision today, Lord. We want you to be our heart's desire. We want you to be all that you are for us. Though so often we neglect, we forget, we take it for granted. Help us to see it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me make a quick little adjustment here that I'm worried online I may have gone a little quiet because I I feel too loud in the beginning and I take control and then uh, it ends up throwing off the video. So sorry about that. Um, This is now uh, part four um, of this larger text that we've kind of been going through in Luke chapter 21, uh, traditionally known as the Olivet Discourse. And um, I'm not going to do big summaries anymore. I've kind of done that going through uh, the first three because things get quite complicated. But I will at least say this. Um, Jesus' disciples here, you remember, are, um, you know, Jesus has just kind of predicted, prophesied even the destruction of the temple. And his disciples are kind of asking when and where and what's going on. They're talking about, you know, God or, or Jesus, give us the signs we need to be looking for when this sort of stuff's going to happen. And they're, they're even concerned, we know, about the end of the age. They assume these things are coming together the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. Um, I've said in messages past, that one of the interpretive keys really to kind of unlocking the complexity of this passage is uh, recognizing that when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, which we know historically happened 70 A.D., uh, he is actually seeing in that event a sort of foreshadow or typological preview of uh, the final judgment that's to come. The end of the age and the destruction of the temple are two separate events, contrary to what the disciples thought, though they are related. Though they are related. And the one foreshadows and previews the other. Now, this morning, our focus is going to be verses 25 through 28. So sorry if I uh, uh, overdid it there by reading the whole thing that, uh, in advance um, of these verses. But I just thought, you know what? The context matters. I want you to see it. Uh, in the verses prior, uh, I would say the the. The center of gravity, so to speak, has been kind of shifted towards uh, what's happening in 70 AD. But now in verses 25 through 28, it's as if that center of gravity kind of shifts the other direction. And he kind of goes uh, full bore towards, I think, the end of the age and what's going to happen there. Uh, That's at least my read on it. That's what I'm going to bring out this morning. That's going to be our focus. Um, The end of the world. As I've said, perhaps some of us these days are thinking a little bit more about that as we watch the world seemingly uh, shaking at its foundations all around us. Uh, certainly what we see here is that Jesus has much to say about it and he has much to do with it. So we're going to um, tune in to that now. Verses 25 through 28, I'm going to be asking four questions to try to come at this. Question number one, who is coming? Who is coming? Who is coming? Number two, how is he coming? Number three, why is he coming? And number four, what about us? So, who is coming? How is he coming? Why is he coming? What about me? What about you? Uh, it seems, I think, straightforward enough at first, but what we're going to find is every answer to these questions. Every answer is going to kind of hit us from left field. It's going to actually be a little bit uh, unexpected, a little bit surprising. Um, And I think you'll see that as we go. So, first question Who is coming? At the end of the age, at the end of the world, who does Jesus say is coming? Now, I love this because we happen to be, um, like uh, Peter and Christine said, uh, we happen to be in the first week of the Advent season, which, of course, is the celebration of Jesus's first coming. But now we find ourselves uh, looking at, anticipating, studying, considering together uh, Jesus's second coming. And so we ask the question, who is coming? And you say, well, isn't it obvious, Nick? In fact, you already just alluded to it. Uh, Jesus is coming. And I say, yes, you're right. Uh, Let's move on to question number two. No, that's that's not what I want to do. There's more here that I want us to see. There's actually something very significant uh, in answer to this question that is a bit veiled, and we might not see it at first. In verse 27, Jesus doesn't just say, Um, And then they will see me coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He doesn't say that. He could have. It'd be true. But instead, he says this. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Not just me, but the Son of Man. And we have to step back and go, the Son of Man. Who is that? What is that? What does that mean? Why is Jesus leveraging that title for himself? If I were to just kind of uh, pull an unschooled uh, person, a person who doesn't uh, maybe know the scriptures, isn't familiar with the scriptures, doesn't have church background, maybe even some of you uh, who hear, okay, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. On the surface, I, th- I think the read would be, well, okay, we're talking about a human being. We're talking about a person, a, uh, someone who is a son of a man. A, that's kind of what we all are, in a sense, a daughter of a man, but we're all, it's a human being here, right? And that's partly what Jesus is getting at. But if we stop there, then we miss the fullness of what he's saying. I think he's certainly saying, hey, he is a human being, and he's accenting that with this title, no doubt, but there's a lot more to it. Um, in fact, one of the things we realize, and I'm not sure if I've brought this out in um, our going through Luke yet or not, but um, certainly not to the detail I'm going to do this morning, uh, but this is actually Jesus' uh, title of choice. When he's talking about himself, uh, when he's ascribing a title to himself, this is his go-to, Son of Man. So this is significant. Because in the Gospels, people call him all sorts of things. Uh, they call him rabbi. They call him teacher. Uh, they call him master. They call him Christ, Messiah. They call him Lord, even. But Jesus doesn't grab a hold of any of those when he's talking about himself. When he's talking about himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. On the one hand, it shows his solidarity with humanity, right? that he came in the flesh, that he is uh, fully man. But on the other hand, what's awesome is see Jesus is always saying things that you need ears to hear, okay? And those that don't have ears to hear, well, they just stop, okay, he's, he's a dude, he's a son of man, he's a human being, great. And they stop there, but those that are really interested, who is this? Those that press in and search the scriptures, they're going to find there's a lot more to this than just he's a human being. They're actually going to find that he's also this divine figure. Maybe not just fully man, maybe also fully God, and they're going to find that he's on mission, this title would seem to elicit, he's on mission to save the world. It's this wonderful title that doesn't have all the baggage that Messiah and Christ did politically so that they all thought he's going to be this Davidic king sitting on this throne there in Israel and do away with Rome and things. No, he could use this Son of Man thing and slip it through the back door. I am fully man, but I am also fully God and I'm going to be your king, King Eternal. And those that have ears to hear start to get it. This title, um, while it's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to mere human beings, um, in one place in particular, comes to take on much more significance. And that's in the book of Daniel, particularly uh, Daniel chapter seven. I'm just gonna give you a quick run through on this because I think it's pretty amazing. Uh, Daniel seven, here's what happens. Uh, Our boy Daniel, this uh, prophet there, uh, held captive in Babylon, Uh, He has this dream, and in this dream, these beasts start rising one by one out of the sea. These are these nasty, just hideous things, right? There's one, we're told, that looks like a lion, one that looks like a bear, one that looks like a leopard, Uh, although everything's kind of amplified and kind of Halloweened out, right? These beasts coming out. And then the fourth one can't even be likened to anything because it's just that hideous. What well, we come to find is that these beasts each represent uh, a, a, a king and their uh, corresponding kingdoms, right? And, and, and we understand, therefore, that what's being said as we kind of get the interpretation uh, from the angels and from God and Daniel and things, uh, we understand that uh, what God is saying is there's going to be this history. Mankind's history is just going to be riddled with uh, wicked authority, wicked leaders, violence, oppression, beastly type activity, uh, even from the people who are in charge. No justice, oppression, all of these sorts of things. And you don't need me to tell you that this is in fact what has taken place. This is in fact the world that we live in. All you got to do is turn on the news. And you see what's going on around the world or even in our own country and the wicked leadership that takes place and, and, and the self-interest and the beastly sort of authority. And some of you, perhaps on a smaller scale, have experienced that as well, whether that's you know, from a, a teacher or even a pastor that abused you or a parent or other uh, person that should have been looking out for your good. Instead, they manipulated, they objectified, they used you for their own gain. Like a beast, like an animal, they just chewed you up and spit you out and here you are left with pieces. So this is our history. What Daniel sees plays out. There is wickedness, injustice, even at the highest level. But then suddenly... At the close of Daniel's vision, in breaks the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, and he sets up these thrones, plural actually, there in heaven, and he's going to judge these beasts, and he's going to put an end to their reign of terror. But as he's doing this, we're told uh, that Daniel suddenly sees one coming, here we go, with the clouds of heaven. Sounds like our text. And then we read verse 13, one like a son of man. And we're told that, quote, "...he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve." And in the Hebrew there, it it could even be rendered, "...worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." That's why I had us read that text uh, for Advent in Luke at the beginning. Because it says His kingdom's going to be forever. And in Isaiah, it says His kingdom's going to be forever. And then here in Daniel, it says His kingdom is going to be forever. Only here, it's tied to this Son of Man and what He's going to do in conquering these beasts and the kingdom He's going to bring in. So this Son of Man sits down on the throne with God and reigns forever. Now, I actually want to take us one more step back is to fully get what's being said here in Daniel and what he's seeing and therefore what Jesus is alluding to. I think we actually gotta go back to the opening pages of the Bible. We gotta go back to Genesis 1 through 3. We're prone to look at some of these big images like beasts and things. We get all worked up with what in the world is going on and it may be a little simpler than we realize if we look at things in context of the whole storyline of Scripture. And so going back to Genesis one through three, what we see here starts to make a little bit more sense to us. Um, You remember, perhaps, we talk about it a lot, that men and women have been created in God's image. Made in the likeness and image of God, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. And being created in the image of God, he gives us this unique role where the call is to uh, partner with him in ruling and reigning over the created world. So he uses words like have dominion, the same sorts of words that we're we're told the son of man is going to have. He's going to have dominion and it won't end, right? Well, that's the sort of thing that human beings were created to, to have with God, to have dominion over the birds, over the fish, and actually also over the beasts. Interestingly enough. But instead, they don't rule over the beasts. We don't rule over the beasts. Adam and Eve, instead, what happens? We watch it. They become more like the beasts, right? They become more like the animals. They become something less than human. They acquiesce to animal instincts, to self-oriented pleasures, to mere bodily appetites, to the lusts of the flesh, and things like this. They decide, yeah, we're going we're to define good and evil for ourselves and we're going to take that throne a little early we're going to sit down and not just kind of be with god we're going to be like god we're going to be god and in so doing they actually become more like the animals that's what we what's what, what we see but now here's something i doubt you've noticed uh, because we always picture satan as a snake right as a snake like we know them we all of our storybooks show him as a snake Uh, That's kind of how we automatically picture him Uh, and while we don't know uh, exactly what uh, this creature was that Satan animates there in the Garden of Eden, uh, while we don't exactly know what the sort of creature was before he was cursed uh, to crawl on his belly and eat the dust, we do know that the scriptures call him, believe it or not, a beast, a beast, It's right there on the surface of the text. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. So this beast animated by Satan as it was gets the upper hand over Adam and Eve and over every subsequent king and kingdom and even over us. That's the sort of stuff that Daniel's talking about. And this is why Jesus has come. And it's why the title, the Son of Man, is so significant. He's a human being. Truly uh, the image of God. Come down. To stand where Adam and Eve fell. To overcome the beast and these beastly temptations to sin and other things. This is what is going on in the wilderness when uh, Satan comes to him and essentially tries the same trick he tried with Adam and Eve. Define good and evil for yourself. Use your power and authority to get what you want here and now. Immediate gratification. Get that kingdom now. Don't wait on your father. I'm not even sure he likes you. Take it. And he resists. You see, he's going to overcome the beast. He's going to do away with the oppression and the injustice and this whole cycle uh, of sick uh, human history that we've created in our sin. This is why straight from here in Luke 21, opening verses of Luke 22, what do we see? We're told that Satan entered Judas, verse 3. I mean, we're coming out, the Son of Man, conquering this beast, right? This picture that we're given, overcoming Satan's sin and death. And what do we see right in Luke 22? Man, Satan's getting ready for mortal combat. Satan's getting ready for the final showdown. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the truly human one. Come to confront and conquer the beast. God in the flesh, come Stand where Adam fell and in that pull humanity out from its its, its beastly uh, fallenness and sin. This is what he's saying is coming when he returns. He's going to put an end, in other words, to all that's wrong with the world. So Revelation 19, the grand finale, here it is. Uh, We read this. He shows up on a white horse with the sword coming forth from his mouth. And John tells us, and I saw the beast and the kings. Same imagery. Saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's Jesus and the church. And the beast was captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So, Jesus is going to be that one. Here's what he's saying. The son of man, I'm going to sit on that throne. I'm going to conquer those beasts. I'm going to bring out from the ashes a new humanity, a new world order, a new kingdom with a new and at last, finally, a good king. That is what is coming. I mean, bottom line, few implications from this. Number one, Biden or Trump aren't going to fix your problems right if you if you if you follow the political uh, games you realize that largely the the guy who's kind of trying to come in and win the presidency or whatever uh usually his biggest his biggest play is i'm not that guy if we have a president long enough he screws up enough things because he's not jesus and he can't fix it he can deliver on this or that promise but he's made all these other people mad because their stuff has gotten worse And so this new guy coming in, his biggest play is, I'm not that guy. And we, like a a bunch of of sheep, just kind of go, oh, yes, this is now going to be my hope. He's the one who's going to, and then after we've chewed him up and spit him out four or eight years, we're ready for the next guy who comes in and says, I'm not that guy. These guys aren't going to fix us. They're a part of this this, this broken system. Hopefully, Jesus is redeeming. Hopefully, Jesus is moving on individual souls and and he he can help our culture and our society. But ultimately, our hope is in the coming king. Jesus. Not in the next president or wherever it might be. Now, the other implication for this, I just thought a lot about. I've been noticing it in myself and I want to just give you this for free. It's kind of a side note thinking a lot about this image we get of sin as sort of a beastly impulse in us. And Satan as kind of this, this sort of uh, kingdom of the beast, if you will. Because there's a lot to this. And there's a lot we can glean. Um, I wonder if you remember, after Adam and Eve fall, uh, then we see the same sort of stuff going on in their offspring and their kids, right? And so God comes to Cain, who's struggling with jealousy. And God says this to him in Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Notice the imagery he uses. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Did you catch that? Sin is is, is pictured in this sort of beastly fashion. Almost as like a predator that's hungry, lurking, hunting. It's crouching at the door. This is language to describe animals. He's saying sin is there, Cain. It's right at the door and its desire is for you. And you've got to rule over it. Sound familiar? You've got to do what your parents didn't do. But you see, it's interesting because so often when we are tempted uh, towards uh, one thing or another, towards sin, one of the big, biggest problems is we just go right on with it. We don't even hardly realize, we don't even necessarily even call it temptation because we're just so used to, hey, uh, I, I, I want it, I feel it, I grab it, I get it, I do it. Just these animal sort of beastly impulses where there's no stopping and recognizing, whoa, there's war going on here. If we pause, if we stop, if we slow down, we can almost hear Satan's voice. If we slow down, if we pause, we can almost feel Satan's breath on the back of our neck. He's inviting us in those moments to something beastly, to define for ourselves good and evil. And take what we want here and now. Don't wait for God. Don't wait for the Son of Man to come in the clouds. Get what you want and get it now. Go ahead. Click on that image on the internet. Devour that woman like a beast. Object. Just exists for you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let your spouse have that earful that he or she deserves. You're right. Tell her. Right. Just spill out the venom like an animal. Go ahead. Have another drink. It's the holidays in another, in another, in another. Don't be a human being reflecting God's image in the world. Be a beast who gets what you want in the way you want it, whenever you want it. Whatever the cost. That's how sin works, you see. It, it, we're invited to devour this world and devour other people. But truly, what we see in Genesis 4, it ends up devouring us. I'm just saying, pause for a moment when you're feeling, pay attention to what's going on in your heart, because he's doing this with you and with me. It's like, we're created for so much more to be God's image bearers, having dominion, instead, all the stuff, we just let it have dominion over us appetites, and fleshly lusts, and all these things. We don't got to be like Cain, who ended up just walking right into it, killing his brother. I don't care, in a jealous rage. Instead, in Christ, in Christ, in the Son of Man, because he has overcome the beast, because he has done these things, we can walk free. Not perfectly, by any stretch, but we can start to walk out of this we can be renewed in God's image. All right, that is who is coming. That's going to be my longest one. You thought I was going to be the shortest. Now, how is he coming? How is he coming? Uh, We're told that he's coming in a cloud, verse 27, and that's really the detail that I wanted to focus on with you guys for a moment. Because again, it's a bit surprising kind of what we can bring out from this that we may just pass over. Uh. Just like we hear of the Son of Man, and we may just think of someone who's a human being, we come to find out, whoa, he's this divine, like, warrior king, eternal. I I would not have got that from Son of Man. Same thing when we think of Jesus coming in a cloud. We may have in our minds, uh, you know, something akin to, like, the Care Bears, or, uh, like, Mary Poppins. I actually, can I just say it? I'm so sorry. I haven't even watched Mary Poppins all the way through. I'm sorry, but I have seen the beginning (laughs) where she's kind of coming in on the clouds, and it's like, this is cute, this is nice. These little fluffy things, oh, how sweet. And this is Jesus coming in, you know, for us, no wonder the the, the nations laugh at us for believing in these sorts of things, because it just seems like, yeah, we have this pie in the sky, and here he comes. This is going to be nice. But there's so much more to this image if we look at it in the context of scripture. I hope you're catching, uh, just as a kind of side benefit, how to study your Bibles here and the importance of it. Because there's so much more. We might just, if we just go with our intuitions right away, you just kind of pass right over. But I want to show you the deep roots to this idea of of, of a cloud and God in uh, the scriptures. To make sure we kind of sense what very well could be uh, being alluded to. As Jesus says, I'm going to come. And I'm coming in a cloud. So the cloud, if you recall, and we'll do this one quicker uh, than the last. If you recall, it was in fact God's way of kind of manifesting his presence. It was this manifestation of his glory and his presence with the people of Israel. With his people. And uh, in fact... um, the, this cloud came to have a name in, in uh, Jewish culture. Um, and some of you guys probably know it. It's called the Shekinah, which comes from the Hebrew uh, Shekhan, which means to dwell, because they saw that cloud as the, the symbol of the reality of God's presence and his dwelling with them. And they're getting all of this because of, of, of this history I'm about to show you. So in the book of Exodus, uh, as the people are being brought out from Egypt, what happens? How does God show them that he's with them? Where well, we're told, Exodus 13, 21, that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. So it shows up as this sort of glory cloud. I am here. I am with you. Let's go this way. I know it's scary, but here I am. Don't be afraid. Or when uh, Moses is given the law on top of Mount Sinai. Do you remember how God shows the people, I am up there. It's shrouded in this thick and frightening cloud. So we read Exodus 19.16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. But then at the end of the book of Exodus, kind of the climax of at least this section of the Torah and, and this book for sure. Uh, they just finished the tabernacle and the construction of it. And uh, all along the way, you're reading these things about the tabernacle and all these details going, what is the point? Well, Exodus 40 is really the point in in, in, um, at least macro view, because there what we see is God kind of takes up residence in his home. This is where I'm going to dwell. This is how you know I'm with you. And what does he do? What do we read? Happens, Exodus 40, 34 to 35, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we read of the very same thing happening with the more um, permanent structures of the temple when that's finished. The cloud comes in. God comes in. There's a rich biblical history with this image of a Cloud. It may just be lost on us. We're picturing Mary Poppins, and Jesus is perhaps touching his finger on some of this. God's presence with them. That's what the cloud means. It's his glory. It's his presence. It's his coming to dwell. In fact, we should have already kind of gotten onto this even from Luke's Gospel itself. Luke chapter 9, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus pulls a few of His buddies up to the top there and He's transfigured before them. Radiant, resplendent, glowing white, showing them a bit of His glory. And God shows up. How do we know? Because the cloud comes. Verses 34-35, A cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. So God's presence is signified by a cloud. And Jesus then is saying, I'm coming in a cloud. In other words, I'm bringing the fullness of God's presence down to earth. In other words, uh, we are going to restore finally, fully, forever, the relationship between God and man. That's where this is going. That's what Jesus is coming to do, and we'll touch on that a little bit more, but let me at least say this. I find it very interesting that this whole discussion is happening in the context of Jesus saying, the temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to fall down. Not one stone's going to be left on another. I'm sick of this place. Is that what he's saying? No, clearly not. He is not destroying the temple because he's done with the temple, so to speak. He's destroying the temple because the plan of redemption has just hit kind of another phase. We just got an update to our operating system and we're no longer in that old thing where the window just keeps spinning and the little ball just keeps going. We're getting some serious upgrades here. He's making the temple obsolete. He's not destroying the temple. He's fulfilling it. That's what's happening. God never meant for us to travel to some building to find Him. That was never the, last, the lasting final approach. That's not what what's going on in the Garden of Eden. He intended for, us, for Himself to be our dwelling place, so to speak. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, all the time, in His presence together. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's finally going to realize in full at the end it's not destruction of the temple it's fulfillment of it which is why just a little side note some of you have heard me say this before but i just think it's so interesting when when john sees the uh, new jerusalem coming down um, from heaven and he's catching this vision of the age to come and what it's going to be like and new heavens new earth new jerusalem all of a sudden the angel like breaks out a ruler (laughs) and you're going this is kind of anticlimactic i don't need math right now right all of a sudden, the angel breaks out a ruler on the New Jerusalem. Let me, let me, you know, like, okay, what? Well, this thing's still under construction? What is going on? And we're told that its length and width and height are equal. Revelation 21, verse 16. In other words, it's a perfect cube. You say, okay, what is that? I, I don't understand. What sort of a weird place is this? And it sounds strange until you realize. You go back into the architecture of the temple and you realize that the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was also a perfect cube. And then you catch what's being said. Then you catch why there needed to be a ruler in that moment. It's not about how many inches or whatever. It's about the new heavens and new earth, the new world that God is creating in Jesus is going to be the Holy of Holies. It's not just one year, one guy goes in there with blood on his hands and he's freaked out because he may die. And everyone else stands out trembling. It's everyone in there all the time. Blood's already been shed in Jesus. This is our place. This is our home. We are with God and He is with us. That's where this is going. This is not Mary Poppins coming down from some fluffy cloud this is God coming to dwell forever with man. And I just want you to hear that. He, he wants to be with you. If we're honest, I mean, I always say, just, if we let out our inner junior hire, <laughs> if we let out our, our inner child, so to speak, I mean, we all long for relationship. We don't want to be alone. We want to be known and loved. In the deepest possible ways. It's what it means to be created in the image male and female created. Him. And for it not to be good, for man to be alone. What is all that? It's, it's not a picture that, hey, your wife or your, your husband's going to fill you or whatever. No, they're, they're not. It's ultimately a picture of this relationship we were created for with him. And that's coming. And so some of us, man, it's been a lonely season for everyone, but especially uh, for some of us. And I just want you to grab a hold of the reality that Jesus is coming, that God is coming, that his dwelling place, you're on his heart. He loves you, and he wants to be with you. That's got to matter. That's got to mean something to us. Certainly means something to him. All right, why is he coming? So we've seen who is coming. We've seen how he's coming. Now, why is he coming? I've been alluding to this all along uh, the way, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But I did at least want to bring out a little bit of the unexpected nature of the answer, at least as we kind of look at it uh, as it's presented to us in our text. Because the way I've been talking about it, it sounds kind of nice. Like, I can't wait for Jesus to show up. But you read it in our text and you go, wait, Nick, are you talking about the same event? This sounds frightening. Look at, look at verses 25 and 26 of Luke 21 again. Uh, when we kind of think, why is he coming? It doesn't look so good here. It says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, the stress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear with, and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You read this and you go, oh, Whatever that is, I'm not sure I want to be there. I'm not sure I want any part of that. This sounds crazy. It sounds like creation is kind of ripping apart, and I think that's actually the point of the language. If you remember, again, Genesis 1, God looks at chaos. He looks at the unruliness, and he brings order to it and creates the realms of heaven, sea, and land. Fills and brings order to the chaos. Now what we see is those very same realms, sun, star, moon, the sea and its waves, the land and its people. All of these realms are now just kind of receding back into chaos, as it were. It's a sort of uncreating event that's going on here. That's a nice way of putting it. Putting it bluntly, things are being destroyed. Creation is ripping apart at the seams. So you look at this and it's like, I, I don't see good news here. Why is Jesus coming? Why is the Son of Man coming? It looks like he's coming to destroy. But this is when we need to consider what Jesus says at the end there in verse 28. Your redemption is drawing near. We see destruction. And there is going to be a destruction. But that's not the last word here. Where Jesus is going with all of this is what He sums up under that word redemption. This isn't just uncreation going on. This is recreation. This is new creation. Jesus isn't just throwing away the world. He's renewing it. He's restoring it. So Peter in Acts 3.21 says that, listen, Jesus is in heaven now, but when He returns... Uh, or we'll know He's going to return. Um, or I'm sorry, forgive me. Jesus is going to remain with His Father in heaven quote, until the time for restoring all things. He's not calling it destruction here. He's calling it restoration when Jesus comes. Or Peter again in 2 Peter 3, here He does talk about destruction. He says, listen, the world is reserved for fire. Judgment is coming. It's not going to be pretty. But that's not going to be the the, the last thing to happen. That's not going to get the the last word. Verse 13 of 2 Peter 3. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the Son of Man is going to do away with the beast and all the unrighteous kingdoms and the reigns of terror. And righteousness is going to dwell in the new heavens and new earth. Yes, he's going to bring judgment and justice. No, that's not the ultimate aim. And the end goal is to bring righteousness and a new world forth where things are as they ought to be. God God dwelling with man, man dwelling with God. It's what John sees in Revelation 21, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This isn't away with the old and just wrap it up put it out not even don't even put it in the recycling bin just put it out with the trash sorry christine (laughs) that's not what's happening no this is i've come to make all things new new and we're not talking about christmas morning new right like new toy new coffee maker new sweater new the, the kind of new that by the time the next Christmas rolls around, that new is already old and it's in a bag to go to Goodwill so you can make room for the new new in your garage. That's not the new we're talking about. We're talking about the eternally new. The everlasting new. Uh, the sort of new that keeps the soul ever engaged, ever alive, ever satisfied. It's the sort of thing that every heart is longing for. I wanted to read this uh, quote from C.S. Lewis because everything C.S. Lewis says typically is gold. This one you've probably heard Uh, It's pretty famous, but I, I thought of it at this point because we long for this world that's coming. This is why Jesus is coming. To answer that question, he's coming to bring in this new world. And I want to show you how we're all longing for it, whether we know it or not. Most of us find it very difficult, he writes, to want heaven, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we've not been trained Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what, we would, what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We've all experienced that. Just trying. What is going to fill? Nothing ever seems to. And he says the most probable, logical explanation. If we have all these longings, these deep longings that nothing here seems to be able to get at, is that we were created for another world. And it's that world that Jesus is coming to bring in. That's why He's coming as the Son of Man. In a cloud to bring lasting satisfaction to uh, allow us to fully experience truly experience God and love life and pleasure not just a ringing echo but the real thing now last question then and this is where we'll close what about us Uh, what about us Where are we in all of this? What are we to do? How should we be responding? Uh, Where's my place? Uh, I've already mentioned the fact that it seems, at least at first read, that perhaps where we should be is uh, scared, terrified, running, fainting (laughs) with fear. I mean, we saw it. Many people on this day are experiencing just that. Jesus speaks of the distress of nations and people fainting with fear and foreboding. It doesn't sound good. And clearly there are some for whom it will not be good. That's the implication of these words. So again, why am I painting it in such a positive light? And how can Jesus come down there in verse 28 uh, and say to his disciples, Now, when you see all these things taking place, all the craziness and the chaos and the uncreation and the destruction and the fear and the trembling, when you see all of that taking place, straighten up and raise your head thought of Levi at this point, because when he gets in trouble, he, he now, he kind of ex- exemplifies in his body how he feels in his heart. <laughs> when he can't have something or he gets in trouble, he literally does this. And he walks around the house like this. And some of us are living our lives that way, burdened and broken and under the weight of this world. And Jesus says, listen, when you see these things happen, straighten out. It's the posture of anticipation, the posture of hope. Lift your head. Redemption, he says, is drawing near. In other words, there are some for whom this, uh, this coming day of judgment, the end of the world, is going to be fear and foreboding. And there are others. Somehow, it's going to be a, a great day, a, great, a, a day of celebration and, and joy, a day to anticipate. I'm just saying, how can this be? How does this work? I thought of what Tim Keller has to say about judgment at this point. I love it. He says, listen, if there is no judgment day, well, then there's no hope for the world. Because God is the only judge who can make all the wrong right, who can put an end to oppression and evil, who can, who can actually renew things. So if there is no judgment day, there's no hope for the world. But then he wraps around and says, but if there is a judgment day, there's no hope for me. Because I am a participant in the oppression and the injustice. I'm not just a victim. I engage in these things and I deserve His wrath. How in the world, therefore, can we be saying, lift up your head, look to the sky, your day of redemption is here. It's going to be a great day. How does that work? It all comes down to what Jesus is about to undergo on the cross in a few short days, doesn't it? In Luke 21, 25, we're told that on that day, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And then in Luke 23, 44 and 45, while Jesus is hanging there on the cross, we read, It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed should have been the time when the sun was at its peak and everything was dark in the sky above our Savior as he hung on the cross. In Luke 21-26, we're told that the cataclysm will be so dramatic on the last day that even the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then in Matthew 27-51, we're told that as Jesus breathed His last there on the cross, the earth shook and the rocks were split. So much so that the curtain in the temple was torn and the tombs in the local cemeteries, as it were, were rent open. Great earthquake in the land. What does this mean? What is happening? I'll tell you what is happening. It's as we said last week, if you were here, Judgment Day is coming early for Jesus so that it can go well for you and I. The only true Son of Man The true human being who who truly reflected God's image and had dominion over the beast and over the creation and followed His will through and through is facing the wrath you and I deserve for our sin, for our beastliness, treated like a slab of meat on the cross, devoured for you and I the Shekinah glory cloud presence of God that came around His Son in the Mount of Transfiguration and said, man, I'm so well pleased with you. Turned on the Son there at Calvary. Poured out His fury upon Him. Not because the Son did anything wrong, but because the Father and the Son love you and I and want the the, the day, uh, the last day, the end of the age, not to be a day of destruction for us, but to be a day of redemption. That's the point. And that's why there's a difference. That's why there's a difference in response here. You see, there are some who uh, rolled the dice on a bet That God was just a fairy tale akin to Mary Poppins. That Jesus wasn't coming back. That Christians are just wackos. That I get to define good and evil for myself and just satisfy my appetites here and now. I mean, if if this isn't the the beast's anthem, then I don't know what is. Let us eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Live it up! Because there's nothing after this and there certainly isn't a God. God. To give an account. For they rolled the dice on that bet and they were wrong. And they will give an account for their sins on their own. It would be a day of fainting and fear and foreboding for them, but for those who pushed all their chips in on Jesus here and I said, listen, I, I think there's something to this. I can't stand before this God, holy and perfect and pure as He is. I've taken part in the beast's activity of injustice and oppression and self satisfaction to the neglect of everyone else. I need what Jesus did for me there on Calvary, there on the cross. And push their chips in on that. Embrace Him. Spirit poured out upon us already renewing us day by day in the father's image and that last day will not be a day of destruction for us it'll be a day of our ultimate salvation the day where the longings of our heart are finally realized the day where we're renewed fully in the image of god we see him as he is and we will be as he is with him forever You know, we're celebrating Christmas and things coming up, right? And here's the bottom line. At Christmas, Jesus comes in weakness. And he comes in frailty. And he comes in humility. Baby in a manger. What's the big deal about that? But you see, he comes in that way. So that. When he comes again in power and glory and majesty and might, it could be a good day for us. If he came that way the first time, we'd be gone. But because he comes not to judge, but to be judged in our place the first time. When he comes again the second time to judge, there's not fear. There'll be hallelujah on my lips. Because I know I've been ransomed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And I pray you all have too. So I just encourage you to consider afresh where you are with Jesus. You're fully embracing Him. I mean, maybe some of us are on that place where we have been kind of taking that bet, going, I, I'd rather live it up here and now. Is it really worth that? Especially because life is not just better with Jesus then. It's actually better with Jesus now, too. (laughs) That's the truth. But then others of us, yeah, we're Christians and we're following Jesus and we love him and all this, but we've kind of started to listen to a bit of the beast's uh, uh, logic. And we need to refresh, just lay our lives down whatever's in our hands, whatever we're saying, nah, that's good, I don't care what God says. We're hurting ourselves. Let's worship, let's worship. Let me pray.